0: passage we're going to look at uh, today on page 1182 of the Red Bibles. Well, I think as ordinary people, we often want more and more. As we reflect on the past year, and maybe as uh, lots of different uh, companies have been reflecting on the past decade... I think we can see lots of ways people have craved for more. Just think in the last decade about the rise and domination of streaming services like Amazon Prime and Netflix, giving us more and more choice. Thousands upon thousands of choices of film and TV. So much so that I think the average family actually spends more time trying to choose a film than they do actually watching it. Or think the more recent phenomena of uh, Marie Kondo and her quest to help people become more organized and more efficient, have lives that are better put together. And as we ask that question of ourselves as Christians, what are we wanting more of? What should we be wanting more of in our Christian life? The temptation, I think, as we often see throughout the Gospels, is we want more power. We want something more physical. Maybe more signs of the miraculous or the heavenly. Maybe we want more of that feeling of God's presence among us. Well, as we look at Colossians 1 and focus our time on verses 9 to 14, which is Paul's prayer for the church in Colossae, we're going to see what Paul is telling us we should want more and more of. And his prayer not only lays down a challenge to our desires and what we want more of, but it also acts as a model of prayer that we can use as we pray for each other as a church family. And my hope is that as we look at this passage together, it's going to spur us on to pray, especially this next week in our week of prayer as we focus on praying. But I hope also that it will set us up for the rest of this year and hopefully the rest of our lives as we live each day as Christians dependent on our Heavenly Father. But before we dive into our focus verses in 9 to 14, it's worth thinking a little bit about the context of Colossians and the context of verses 1 to 8. Now, Colossae, uh, where uh, this town, uh, was a town about 100 miles inland of the coast of Turkey. Now, history suggests it wasn't a hugely important trade city like Athens or Corinth, but it had been, and this is the most important fact, it had been touched and it had been reached by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's clear from chapter 4 and verse 12 that a man called Epaphras had been converted as Paul had preached about Jesus in the city of Ephesus. Now this man Epaphras had gone back to Colossae where he was a citizen and he'd spread the word of Jesus there also. And now we read that a church has been formed and if we flicked onto the letter of Philemon we would see that it gathers in his house, this church. So this church that Paul is writing to in Colossians is a young church. It's just been formed, just been gathered together. Just look down at verses 3 to 8 with me and notice a few things. Notice that in verse 3, Paul is thankful to God when he prays for this church. And just observe that he's thankful to God because the gospel is working and bearing fruit wherever it goes. We always thank God, Paul says, and then verse 4 Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Then just jump down to verse 6. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. Just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You see, the gospel is at work in Colossae. Paul is excited about this. And this is helpful as we jump into verses 9 to 14. And think about Paul's prayer. So, firstly, we're going to think about how Paul prays, and we're going to think about his motivation and his method. So, just look down at verse 9 as we think about Paul's motivation. Just look down at the start of verse 9 where Paul says, For this reason. Now, this could seem like a small, innocuous phrase, but it's actually a really important one. It's referencing back everything Paul has said in the first eight verses. It's giving the reason Paul is praying, what he is praying in verses 9 to 14. There's a clear connection for what Paul is thankful for in those opening few verses and what he's going to go on to ask God for in the next five verses. And this is an important thing to notice. Paul is not just praying to God and asking him with lots uh, for lots of things. It's not just a list of requests to be answered by God. It's not purely a need that motivates Paul to pray. It's also not just a sense of obligation. Paul doesn't just feel duty-bound. He doesn't just feel he has to do this, so he has to pray. No, it's not about obligation either. Not that it's wrong to pray because we feel duty-bound. But here, Paul prays because he is thankful. His abounding thankfulness in verses 3-8, as we saw, are about what God has already done for the church in Colossia, Colossae. And that is what is motivating Paul to pray. He sees what the gospel has done, and it motivates him to pray. As we will see a little later, it's the very fact that God had brought about the gospel fruit in the lives of these believers that motivates Paul's prayer. And can I ask us here today, is thankfulness motivating our prayers? As we reflect maybe on the past year and think about ways we're going to change, are we thankful for what's happened As we reflect on the past year and God's goodness and faithfulness to us as a church family, the way he's grown us and been faithful to us, are we motivated to pray in thankful response? Well, we come to the week of prayer gatherings not because we have to, not because our growth group leader keeps hammering us to, but because we see how the gospel has borne fruit right here in Edinburgh, and we look forward to joining our brothers and sisters in thankful prayer to God. Paul challenges us to be thankful in our prayers. Secondly, let's think about the method of Paul's prayer, just in verse 9. Just look at the second half of the first sentence of verse 9. For this reason, Paul says, Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. Paul is very motivated by what God has already done in this church in Colossae, and this means he's now praying without stopping unceasing prayer for this new baby church. Now, we don't want to read too much into this statement, but I think it's fair to say that Paul here is modeling a commitment in prayer for this church. This is not something he prays for on a whim, casually, when he remembers, when he can be bothered getting up five minutes before work. No, this is continual, committed prayer. As we'll see throughout this section, Paul gives us here an example or model that we can follow. Again, we can ask, are we people who are committed to continual prayer? When we're excited about what God is doing in our church, in Edinburgh, in Scotland, do we follow that through with committed prayer, continual prayer? Again, our week of prayer this week is partly there to help us kickstart the new year in the right way with a humble attitude of continual dependence on God as he does his work through his word, through the gospel. You see, Paul is continually praying because he's continually thankful that the gospel of Jesus bears fruit. And that brings us to our second point, what Paul prays. We thought about how Paul prays, and now we're going to think about what Paul prays. I don't know about you, but often I think when I pray... My prayers are often reactive. I hear bad news. I hear, of, <clears throat> excuse me, I hear of someone passing away. I hear of an illness or a job loss, and that's when I pray. Or if it isn't reactive just to bad news, then it's often about worldly situations, a family issue, job, finances. Now, I'm not saying any of these are bad to pray for, so please don't hear what I'm not saying. But let's look at what Paul prays for. Let's see how much bigger what he prays for is and how his prayer should be challenging to us as we pray for our brothers and sisters. Just look down again at verse 9 with me. And the second half is where we see the central prayer of Paul for the church in Colossae. He says, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will and through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives Remember what we said earlier, that Paul's prayer here in 9:14 is based on what he's thankful for and what's happened in Colossae in verses 3 to 8. His thankfulness in those verses came because he knew that the gospel had been preached and that it was bearing fruit across the world and especially in Colossae. So how does this connect with the church knowing God's will? How do those two things connect? How does Paul's thankfulness and his desire for the church to know God's will, how are they connected? Well, we have to ask the question, what is God's ultimate will for all humanity? Well, in one of Paul's other letters in 1 Timothy, he says that God's will is that all people are saved. His will is that people know and believe and trust in his son Jesus and what he did on the cross to save sinners. Do we see the connection there? Paul is thankful for what God has done in the gospel and how the Colossian church have believed it. And now he prays on the back Of that, And ask that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. The knowledge of God's will being the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is God's will. That people know and trust and believe the gospel. Just look at verses 6 and 7. Because from those verses we know that the church in Colossae have understood and learned the gospel from Epaphras. But now Paul's prayer is that they won't just know it, but they'll be filled with it. And see how this prayer is a prayer for the whole church. This is not an exclusive prayer. He's not just praying for the elders or the deacons. He's not just praying for the pastoral team or those with degrees and professions that they would know because they're able to know more. Not at all. This is for the whole church. Everyone, Paul says, needs to be filled with a knowledge of God's will, with a knowledge of the gospel. Just scan down at verse 9 again with me. See that although Paul tells us that this knowledge is spirit-given, it's still knowledge. It's not something that bypasses our faculties. It actually means we have to employ them. This knowledge does not uh, bypass the, the things, the ordinary means that God gives us. It doesn't become a spiritual word or something that's hard to understand. This is about knowing the gospel better. It's about growing in our knowledge of what Jesus has done for us. And I want to say that growing in knowledge, listening to the word being preached, understanding the word, working hard at it, this is just as much a spiritual activity as anything else. We shouldn't be relegating it to something else. I think here is the challenge. Is this what we pray for more of? At the start, I was asking us, what do we want more of? Is this what we want more of? Do we want more understanding and knowledge of the gospel? Do we want that not just for ourselves? Do we want that for our brothers and sisters? That our friends and family would know the gospel more and more each day? But observe also that this knowledge is not an end in itself. Paul is not praying that the church in Colossae know more and that they can show off about their knowledge. He's not praying that they'd be puffed up because they know lots of great facts and Bible references. No, this knowledge has a purpose, which comes in verse 10. Just look at it with me. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Just notice those two words at the start. So that. Paul says, the reason I ask for you to be filled with this knowledge of God's will, filled with this knowledge of the gospel, is that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. This knowledge of the gospel, Paul says, should have a transformative effect. People who have this incredible saving knowledge should be changed from the inside out as they know more and understand more. It should reflect in their behavior. Knowing the gospel should mean we live it out more and more. Our lives as Christians should be reflecting more and more the fact that we've been saved, brought out of darkness, as Paul says in verse 13. And Paul is now going to go on into four specific ways. He wants the people of Colossae and people here today in Charlotte Chapel to be transformed as we understand and grow in our knowledge of God's will. So the first way is by bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit in every good work. As Christian believers, we can live a life worthy and please God more as we do the good works. These good works are those that God has prepared for us in advance to do by serving in his kingdom, the kingdom that he saved us to. As we're filled with the knowledge of the gospel, we will be driven to do good works that please God. Not only do they please God, but we have the assurance that these works of the gospel are going to bear fruit. And we know that because Paul has told us, hasn't he? That the gospel is bearing fruit. That The Colossian church, Shark Chapel, is proof that the gospel bears fruit. The gospel is working. As we see brothers and sisters grow in their knowledge and love of the Lord, we can be encouraged that the gospel is bearing fruit. People are coming to know and love King Jesus. The second outcome of being filled with the knowledge of God's will is growing in the knowledge of God. Growing in the knowledge of God. Now, this might sound a bit confusing. It might sound a bit circular. Hasn't Paul already said he wants to grow people to be filtery with the knowledge of God's will? But I think Paul is showing how the gospel transforms us in a circular way. As the gospel goes out and it bears fruit in people's lives, meaning people become believers, they now grow in their knowledge of the gospel. They're filled with this knowledge of God's will. Then they themselves bear fruit. And as they do that they come to know God even more. The gospel, which is God's will, remember, reveals his character. So as we know the gospel better, as we understand every facet of it, we get to know God's character better. We grow in our knowledge of God. Knowing his will, knowing his gospel, knowing his son reveals more of God to us. So it makes sense that an outcome of being filled with the knowledge of the gospel is that we know our God more intimately, that our relationship with him becomes Closer. Can I ask you, do we see this in our own lives? Do you see this in your own life? Do you study the gospel so you can know God better? Do you ever find yourself, like myself, complaining that God often feels far away, but yet never picking up his word to know him better? Well, the third way we can live a pleasing life to God comes in verse 11. Just look at it with me. It says, by being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. Paul is asking uh, God that the Colossian church may know him better, so that in turn the knowledge of God's greatness and majesty and glory will strengthen them and help them to endure as Christians. One commentator asked the question, how often do we think about spiritual power being about endurance as Christians? How often do we think of spiritual power being able to endure through impossible suffering or illness? About being patient in the most trying of circumstances? I don't think very often we call endurance or patience spiritual power. I wonder if we get the gravity of this request. Paul is saying that the glorious might of God will be at work in us, empowering us to endure, to be patient in all things. Again, this is a challenge, isn't it, to us? Is this what we want? Do we want to be those who endure, who are patient as we reflect on God's glory and majesty? Is this something we're praying for our fellow believers? Do we want to be those who can endure because of God's glorious might? Well, this is what Paul models for us in these verses. Prayers for other people. Deep, big prayers for other people. Well, the final result of uh, the filling of the knowledge of God's will comes in verse 12. Where Paul says, giving joyful thanks to the Father giving joyful thanks to the Father. Here, Paul seems to have come full circle. He started in verse 3 with thankfulness to God, and now he is praying that the result of a deeper knowledge of the gospel, a more intimate relationship with God, would be that they join Paul in thanking God for his work in the gospel. A phrase I once heard at seminary sums this up quite nicely. It says, theology must always lead to doxology. Doxology might sound a bit confusing, but theology, the study of God, understanding him, knowing him better, must always lead to doxology, to the praise of who he is, to thankfulness of how amazing he is and how great the gospel of Jesus is. Theology must always lead to doxology. As we know God better, we should worship him and be more thankful to him. Paul knows that as this church in Colossae and as, as here at Charlotte Chapel As we study the gospel, as we grow in our knowledge of God's will, we should come to be joyously thankful to God. So like earlier, we can ask the same question, is our prayer life motivated by thanksgiving? If someone knew our prayer life, would they observe prayers filled with thankfulness to God for what he's done in the gospel? Or are we praying this for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Do we long for them to be thankful for the work of God in their lives? Or are we often so distracted with circumstantial requests we forget to be thankful to God for the many things he's done in our life? This prayer by Paul should challenge us. It should challenge the way we pray, not just this week and our week of prayer, but for the rest of our lives. When was the last time we can honestly say we prayed like Paul prays here? This week, at the start of the new year, is a good time to commit to praying prayers like this throughout the year. Can you think what it would be like if we all prayed Paul's prayer here in Colossians for each other? And then just think that every prayer we asked was answered in a way that was more than we could ask or imagine. That each of us here, as you look around, grew exponentially in our knowledge of God's will, in our love for the gospel. There' a church we were bearing fruit in every good work and giving unceasing thanks to God for what He was doing here in our church. I think that would be an amazing thing. I think that is something we should strive to see over this next year and beyond, a church that is thankful as we grow in our love and knowledge of the gospel. Well, our final point to think about is similar to our first point, as we think about more about why Paul prays. Why does Paul pray? just look down at verse 12 again with me so he says giving joyful thanks to the father why is paul giving joyful thanks to the father carry on in verse 12 where he says who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins Paul, in these verses, repeats a similar idea from earlier. Here he is fundamentally stating that the reason that thanksgiving can and should happen is because of the gospel of Jesus. Notice how in verse 12 Paul says the word you directed at the Colossian church. What Paul is getting at here is that these Gentile, that means non-Jewish Christians, were not originally part of God's promises in the Old Testament. Now, the covenant in the Old Testament was primarily, not only, but primarily just for Israel. But now, Paul says, you Gentiles, you outsiders have been chosen and qualified by God to become co-heirs with his chosen people in his kingdom. Those who are far off have been brought near. But then in verse 13, Paul makes it universal and all including, to include himself. Just look at it with me in verse 13. But he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How good is this news that Paul outlines here? This outline of the gospel is so sharp that people were living in darkness, in rebellion to God. The Bible says we built our own kingdoms where we told God to shove off. We don't need you, God. We know better. We didn't want him or his rule or his goodness. And for that we faced God's righteous wrath. God was angry at our sin and rebellion. But look what Paul says God has done for those rebellious people. Look what he says he's done for those who trust Jesus. He's brought us out of darkness and into the kingdom of a son whom he loves in verse 13. He's redeemed us. He's brought us back from the slavery of sin. Slavery to rebellion against him. And finally... He's forgiven us. We've been rescued. We've been transferred into his kingdom. We've been redeemed. We've been brought back. We've been forgiven. This is good news. God has forgiven sinful people like you and like me because we trusted that Jesus on the cross bore the wrath of God on our behalf. Praying is a wonderful, wonderful blessing given to us by God. And Paul's prayer in these verses is a challenge to us. I hope it is challenged why we pray and what we pray for. But it's good to remember that all of Paul's prayer and prayer itself has to be rooted in the gospel. You see, the greatest thing you could pray today is that God would bring you into the kingdom of his son, that he would rescue you, redeem you, and forgive you. If you haven't experienced what Paul is talking about in verses 13 and 14, then maybe speak to the person who came with you today. Speak with me after the service, or there's a prayer team here at the front. We'd love to chat more about what it means to be forgiven and brought into the kingdom of Jesus. But then how, as brothers and sisters, can we apply this section? Well, we've mentioned a couple of times already the challenge of reading this prayer and asking, is this what we're praying for other people? When we desire more, what are we desiring more of as Christians? Well, can I urge us this year to really focus on praying for these kind of things, praying these prayers that Paul models to us, that we all pray as a church family that we would know God's will more, that we'd be filled with the knowledge of the gospel, that because of the deep and intimate knowledge of the gospel, we would live lives worthy of the Lord. I think that is a great thing to pray for, isn't it? So why don't we close by praying that together? Let me pray. For us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you that Jesus died in the place of sinful, rebellious people. That you, in your kindness, brought us out of darkness and into the kingdom of your Son, whom you love. Father, please would you fill us all as a church family with a knowledge of your will. Father, as we know your will more and more, please empower us to live lives that are worthy of your name. And we pray this all in the powerful name of King Jesus. Amen.